Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. Um, I do want to make one announcement. This is very, to me, very, very important. Mitzvah Hashem, we're almost there. The 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. Um, so the copies are right now, as we speak, are in Bulgaria. There are 20,000 copies in Bulgaria on a ship bound for uh, New York City. There are also 5,000 copies in a bindery somewhere in the Midwest, also um, down from New York City. Um, and in Mitzvah Shem Hanukkah, the book will be out. So um, if you haven't gotten a copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, I, um, I welcome you to join Hanukkah, be the release. And it's, um, it's been very well received. I've, I've gotten very heartening, very heartening. I, we gave out quite a number of copies to marriage therapists, um, to Hassan Akal teachers, and, and the response has been really overwhelming and very... Um, so, look for it, it'll be out. Ten really dumb mistakes, very small couples make. That was a plug. Okay, ready? Okay, so let's start. Okay, so last week we discussed um, the fact that there are three methods via which a person can come to know Hashem. There is a mitzvah muna to know Hashem, but knowing that Hashem... Um, exists, knowing that Hashem runs the world, knowing that Hashem is present right here. Now, the problem is that those are concepts. It's, 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 they're words we say, we say them in davening, and we say Yitz Hashem and Baruch Hashem. But the problem is that our job is to lay that, to know, to actually take it from a theoretical concept to really know in a concrete manner. Now, there are three pillars via which we come to Emunah, and this was the Derech Hashem explained to us. The first pillar is simply the Mesorah. The three million people on Har Sinai <coughs> heard Hashem say, Anochi Hashem Lokecha. They told their children, told their children, and that's the Mesorah that we have. The second method that a person has to come to Emunah is by studying the creation, looking at the vastness, the complexity looking at the incredible systems in the world. And when you see this creation, you say, obviously it was a creator. And the third system is intuitive. Intuitive means there's an internal sense. I began from under Hashem's throne of glory. Hashem put me into this body, and I know things. There are things intuitively I know. Um, the problem is the body blocks it. The, the body puts a interruption. But these are things that intuitively, instinctively I know. Okay. So those are the three ways to come to Hashem, to know Hashem, and the person has to work really on all three. Okay, so let's start this week. Uh, we're going to start with this um, with this session, if everyone has a sheet. Okay, and if you don't, by the way, again, the Derech Hashem, the, the Feltheim edition, the uh, translated by, that's Rabbi Kaplan, right? Is that, uh, who translated it? I think it's, Sorry. anyway, yeah, I think it is. It's a fantastic, yeah, it's an excellent translation, so I highly recommend it. Um, yeah, right. That's the, um, so um, please pick up a copy. I really recommend it because you'll, you'll find we're going to take small pieces and hopefully dig in, but to get a heck if, to get a sort of understanding, you need the breath and it's worth going through it. Okay. Ode Sarach Sheyeda, we're up to Gimel, 
in addition, a person has to know that Hashem that Hashem's existence has to be it cannot be that Hashem cannot exist so not only do I have to know that Hashem exists, I have to know that it's impossible for Hashem not to exist that Hashem's existence is perforce it has to be and there's no way that it could be otherwise Okay. now we're going to discuss this evening two levels to this understanding the first is physical we're going to discuss it from a physical standpoint and the second is metaphysical so let's start with the physical. Maybe the world just happened. Maybe it just exists. All right, so let's start with the following example. Imagine that you're in Tennessee, and you see this huge junkyard with refrigerators and trucks and everything beat up right there, laid out in the junkyard. And there you see the owner of the junkyard. He's a Tennessee fellow over there. And, uh, and you say to him, you know, that's amazing. I see there's a, there's a, a laptop over there. Is that, is that for sale? The fellow says to you, he says, yeah, you know, the laptop, I'll tell you something. You know what happened? <clears throat> Last night we had this wind. This wind came and blew the parts around, blew the parts around, and, and that, that their machine was there in the morning. Amazing, ain't it? Now, needless to say, you're looking a little incredulously and say, well, fella, um, you know, you open it and it works. I know, it's amazing. A lot of parts just moving around. Big, you know, Sir, um, there's, there's a QWERTY keyboard, like it's arranged. I know, it's amazing. A big Northeasterner you know, came through and it blew everything. You know, sir, there's a program that, that runs it, and there's power, and there's a, and there's a battery. And, and, and gee golly, there's a, there's, a, there's a decal on the back with the, with, the, with the Apple image on How did it just come to be? Now, if we were having a serious conversation with this fellow, um, it would be difficult to believe in any sense that he actually... How do, you, how do you argue with someone that, you know, that these pieces, this complexity just happened, just came to be? It would be pretty darn silly and pretty darn difficult to actually believe in any level, please come in, see, um, that, that a laptop just happens to be, there's programming behind it, there's sophistication. There's, okay, now, here's the problem. If you ask a biologist, what are the odds of a single cell in the human body evolving. So the, the equivalent parable that they use is it's the equivalent of a large junkyard, a wind blowing through and blowing together a fully loaded 747. Meaning a human cell, one cell in the human body is so complex. They say that it's more complex than New York City. Um, I spent, my wife and I, my family, we spent um, Shabbos Shuva a couple of years back on Cornell University. I was a scholar in residence, and <clears throat> I was talking about Amuna, and one of the fellows there, one of the students, brought a textbook this thick, a thousand-page biology textbook, and I was thumbing through it. And one cell, the complexity, the vastness, the systems, the machines, what they now understand, it's so beyond description, and it's so absurd that it, it's very hard to have a serious conversation about the vastness of this world, the sophistication of this world, um, and to actually believe that it just came to be, it's, again, it's so beyond, it's so beyond the pale that it's difficult to have a serious conversation about it. But here's the problem. Okay, I'll grant you. I look at the world, I see systems, I see complexity, I see, I see harmonious, I see cosmos, I see stars. I get it. Clearly there was a creator. But maybe the creator created it and left it. Listen, I get it. Hashem's very capable Hashem is very good at doing what he did, but how do I know that Hashem is still here 
And more than that, how do I know that it has to be that Hashem remains here at every moment, which is again what the Derech Hashem is saying to us. So let's begin a little journey to see if we can understand the answer to this question. And to begin this journey, let's start with a bracha that we say often. And that bracha is, Hamotzi lechem min aretz. Blessed be you Hashem, Baruch Hashem, present and accountable right here. Elokeinu, our God, Melech Olam, King of the universe. Hamotzi lechem min aretz. You take the bread out of the ground. Okay, now here's the problem. I buy my bread from Zisha's bakery. Bakery, <coughs> you know, Zisha buys his flour from a distributor who buys it from a warehouse, who buys it from a master distributor, who buys that flour from a farmer's co-op, who buys it from some farmer, Joe, out in Idaho, who plants the wheat. Where is God in that picture? When I say, Hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, I'm saying you, Baruch HaTashem, you Hashem, blessed be you God, right here, Elokeinu Argad, Melech Olam, King of the Universe, Hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, who takes the bread from the ground. A, bread doesn't come from the ground. B, there's a whole chain of events, and where is God in that picture? Okay, so let's start with the following. When my kids were little, we lived in Rochester, and we used to often drive to Niagara Falls, and especially on the other side, there's the Butterfly Conservatory on the Toronto side. And the Butterfly Conservatory is a beautiful exhibit. It's 14,000 square feet, controlled, temperature-controlled atmosphere. It's a beautiful they spent some $10, $15 million to construct it. And you walk in, and it's really, it, it's beautiful. The 2,000 types of butterflies, and they fly around, they land on you. And it's a really lovely, lovely experience. In any case, at a certain point when I was walking around with the kids, I noticed something interesting. You saw the chrysalis, you know, the cocoons. You saw the butterflies. But the life cycle of a butterfly starts with an egg. The egg hatches into a caterpillar. Caterpillar then spins that little cocoon around and hangs upside down for two weeks, and out comes the butterfly. So I saw the chrysalis, the, the cocoon, I saw the butterfly, but there were no caterpillars and no eggs. So I asked one of the curators, why is it that there are no caterpillars? He said, well, caterpillars, they eat us out of house and home. We couldn't possibly keep enough vegetation to grow caterpillars here. And I said to myself, that's interesting. 14,000 square feet. $15,000, and they can't keep one, $15 million, I'm sorry, and they can't keep one species, one species in its full life cycle, because they can't possibly have enough vegetation. In the Amazon wild, let's talk about the, uh, let's talk about the Amazon rainforest. There are approximately 2.3 million square miles of vast, vast habitat millions of species of animals. We're talking when they take one tree and they spray it, you'll find 400 species of insects. And you're talking a complexity. You're talking upper canopy, lower canopy. You're talking tremendous diversity that's un indescribable. And if you study the diversity in the wild kingdom, you'll see things that are really, really beyond description. You'll see a giraffe that's 18 feet tall and a kangaroo that hops You'll see a butterfly that flies, and you'll see a worm that crawls. You'll see cows that graze, and you'll see tigers that eat. You'll see such diversity. They now approximate that there are approximately 10 million species of living things. Okay, what's the point? Imagine you own a business, a successful business, and you decide you want to go on vacation. If you have good employees and you have good systems in place, you could probably take two weeks off and expect that your business will still be running well. 
let's say you decide to take two months off a little tricky but again if you have good systems in place <clears throat> good training good people you could expect maybe to come back to that what if you decided to take two years off you would take two years off from your business say some shalom because a business left unattended just doesn't function the systems break down things come apart and yet you look at a world of such diversity such complexity so many systems and you're dealing with millions and millions of species of animals and you somehow expect it naturally to just be there. Now what's interesting to note is that whenever man tries to make a biosphere, you know they try to make these self-contained biospheres, invariably it fails. There's always too much acid, too much carbon dioxide, something happens and life ceases to exist. Yet you're talking a planet, a planet where such diversity of life and such complex food chains and each one dependent on the other and what happens if one species or one type of insect <clears throat> becomes extinct? The entire food chain is in dis- disarray, right? If the bees stop existing, right? They now figure 80% of fruit trees, a huge percentage of the food that we eat would cease to exist because what the bees do is they pollinate. Now, bees are supported by eating other, <clears throat> either nectar or other, the, I can't even begin to describe, when you study the complexity of each piece dependent on the other, and each level has to be perfectly there. Um, okay, now, ladies, I don't know if anyone's moved yet, but let me, let me share with you one interesting observation. This planet has many, many parts to it that are fascinating, fantastic, and some things that at a certain point you've got to open your eyes and say, that's a little strange. Let me share with you what I mean. Water is essential for life. 65% of our body is comprised of water. Water is needed for animals, for crop growth, for basically without water, life would cease to exist on a planet. Now Baruch Hashem, the planet is, 70% of the planet is covered by water. So obviously we have plenty of water and it's not an issue. The only problem is that 97% of that water is contained in the oceans. An additional 2% is frozen in the polar caps. There's only 1% of the water on the earth that's actually available to man, to animals, to plants, in the form of streams, lakes, underground uh, (coughs) reservoirs. But the point is it's only 1% of the water on the planet. Now here's the interesting part. If you live next to a stream, or there's a lake right near you, okay, I understand how you water your crops. What if you live in Kansas, and there are no streams, no rivers, no lakes, how do you grow corn? How do you grow wheat? How do you water this stuff? So it happens to be that there's a very interesting phenomenon in the world. The huge <coughs> oceans, the Pacific, the Atlantic, all day long the sun is beating down on the ocean, and all day long the water is evaporating. Okay. So <coughs> what happens is the water, the sun beats down, the water evaporates, and as the water begins rising, it cools, and as it starts cooling, it begins forming into clouds. Now, clouds can weigh, you, if you have a section of cloud, it could hold about 143 million pounds of water. We look at this nice, fluffy cloud. It's a huge, massive entity. And it's water that's ready to feed the crops. The only problem is that it's over the Pacific, and Kansas is way down yonder. How do you get this water from here to there? So here's where things get interesting. 
There are trade winds, there are winds. As the earth spins, there are many winds that surround it and many winds that carry it. Now, the problem is that if you look at a cloud, a cloud is just vapor. So here's the tricky part. If the cloud is spread out too far, the winds will just pass through it. If the cloud is too dense, it'll rain right in the spot. It just so happens to be that the clouds are the perfect density and that they act as a wind sail so that the winds catch them, push them. They're not too dense so that they rain right there over the Pacific, not too far apart so they don't cause enough wind resistance. Over the Pacific, over the Atlantic, they happen to form just the right density to be the perfect wind sail so the wind takes them. Okay, so the wind carries them thousands of miles around the globe. Now, and that's wonderful. So you now have 143 million pounds of water. You know, a, a, a gallon of water weighs about 8 pounds. We're talking millions of gallons of traveling. And in fact, around the globe, we're talking billions and billions of, of gallons at any time. In any case, <clears throat> the problem is that's great, but they're up there. How do you get it to, our, to the ground, to our farmer in Kansas? So <clears throat> here's where things get interesting. As you know, <clears throat> water exists in three states. It exists in a state of a gas when it evaporates. It exists as it exists as water when it's room temperature, and it becomes ice when it's uh, <clears throat> when it's cold. What happens is, as these clouds rise, there will be various mountain ranges that will cause the mount the clouds to go higher. As they go higher, they condense and they cool. But that's not enough. There has to be the right amount of winds that carry them not just to the right location, but cool them properly so that they condense to the right format. Exactly when they condense to the right format, they release the water in the form of raindrops. Now, if you want to know what a rain shower is, a summer rain shower in 20 minutes can drop 125 million gallons of water. Now, that would drench anybody's backyard pool. It would destroy your property and every Kansas farm should be wiped out. It just so happens to be that when the clouds are about to release, they're spread out across such a vast expanse. It just happens to work out this way, and that they're spread out far enough that even though they're releasing an, an enormous amount of water, it's so far spread out that it manages somehow not to destroy the crops, but in fact lays out just enough water to feed them. Okay, now that's very fine and well, but here's the problem. Where did that water come from? came from the Atlantic, it came from the Pacific. If you've ever gone swimming there, you know that the mineral content there is very, very, very high, very heavy. It's salty. How do you, how do you feed crops with salt water? How do you, 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 okay. So as you know, <coughs> the distillation process is very interesting. When the sun hits the ocean and <coughs> the water evaporates, it distills. Only the pure water comes out. <coughs> the heavier content, the heavier minerals, the salt, etc., remain down so that the clouds are perfectly clear water. So you have an incredibly complex distillation process, a delivery system, <clears throat> and a way of getting it to move this rain, to move this water from the Pacific to Kansas to Idaho to wherever you may go. But here's the odd part. If you ever ask a meteorologist, is it going to rain tomorrow? Well, yeah, maybe. Why can't meteorologists tell you whether it's going to rain or not? because the winds are so fickle, and it's so hard to predict. And yeah, they might be able to tell you two days, five days, but they can never tell you, because you see, there could be three inches of rain in the southwest, 150 inches of rain a year in the northwest, and it's all dependent on the winds, and all depend. 
when you begin studying this, you realize that there is a very wise, a very capable creator running the show. Because it can't just happen. It doesn't just... And why doesn't it just fall apart? Why does it just cease to exist? But if you're not moved by this yet, here's the observation, I think, that really is, to me, one of the eye-openers. If you ever go to a country road, <clears throat> a dirt road, and it starts raining, what happens to the water? It puddles. Right? You get a lot of rain, and you see big puddles on the... Why doesn't the rain puddle in the field, right? You got your wheat field, you have your corn field. The rain comes down 125 million gallons. Okay, it's nicely spread apart. I got that. Somehow God's got that part down. But when it hits the ground, why doesn't it puddle on the ground and basically drown the crops? So this one we owe to Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin made an interesting calculation. I don't know if he's correct, but he calculated that if you take the amount of sheep that can graze on an acre of land, approximately the same weight of those sheep are underground in aphids and worms. You see, all day long, there's an entire army of insects that are burrowing, that are furrowing, that are <clears throat> digging holes in the ground. And all day long, these worms and these aphids are digging and digging, and there are parasites that decompose, there are predators of the parasites. There's an entire army of things going on underground so that when you look at a farm, what you're actually looking at is much like a sponge. You know, when you look at a sponge, there are pores in it. So if you drop water on the sponge, it's absorbed into the sponge. The land that's arable, the land that we use for farmland, is occupied by billions and really trillions. Un the numbers don't even make sense how many insects are there. What they're doing is they're burrowing, they're creating these tunnels, so that when the water hits the surface, it goes into these little tunnels, enters perfectly, and when you see the complexity, the amazingly delicate balance, you begin to say, this is astonishing. If you'd like to know a parable, I have a simple muscle. If you wonder, maybe Hashem created the world and left it, I have a very simple muscle. Here we go. KLM flight, um, it was 1997, KLM flight 4805. I don't know if you folks remember the story, but basically what happened was there was a terrorist attack on one of the airports, and all of the flights that were going to fly in were sent over to this very small airport. It was then it was called the Redos Airport. It was a Spanish island. In any case, many of these large 747s, large planes, landed on the small island, and the airport there really was not at all equipped to handle these planes. In any case, they have all of these planes sitting there, and they're sitting, and they're sitting, and they couldn't get permission to take off because the conditions were cloudy, the conditions were foggy, they didn't have alternative airports to land. In any case, the KLM flight was flown by one. Was, he was known as a master pilot. He had not only was he the head of training for KLM. He ran training programs for all the various um, different airlines. And he realized that he was now waiting and waiting. And the longer he waited, number one, and there was going to come a point where he would have to take off and stop by safety laws and not allowed to work too many hours in a row. And he realized that if they wait another half hour. He would pass that point. He would have to then park the plane. The plane would have to sit for 24 hours. It would mess up all of KLM's international flights because he was supposed to switch with another plane. Was supposed to switch. Anyway, he decided he just couldn't do it. And he decided he was going to take off. Now, here's the problem. It was foggy. It was difficult to see. But he asked the um, tower for, for clearance. He couldn't get through to the tower. He said, whatever, he's going to do it. And he begins taking off on the runway. And when he's reaching speeds of about takeoff speeds, 
He sees in front of him parked the Pan Am flight, and he tries his best to lift off. He doesn't make it. Smashes directly into the plight, into the other plane, and it was the 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 583 fatalities. It was the worst in history. It was the worst aviation accident in history. Okay, now what's the point? You see, if I were to tell you that there was this major windstorm and this major windstorm came and blew together a 747, you'd say to me, "Cut me a break, right?" But here's the problem: if you go to JFK, you're not looking at an airplane. You're looking at a complex weave of airplanes flying in and flying out. Who's controlling them? If I were to tell you, there's no one in the control tower. There's no one guiding them. They're just uh, on their own. They're just going in and out. They're just, you'd laugh at me. You'd say, that, 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 that's absurd. If there's no control tower, who makes sure that the guy who's dri- driving the fuel truck doesn't end up on the runway? Who makes sure that the commissary doesn't... There has to be control because there has to be... But not just that. And this airport is tied to other airports, and that other airport is tied to other airports. If there isn't communication, the whole thing doesn't work. When you look at a world that we live in, you see the vastness, the complexity, the incredibly <clears throat> intertwined systems, and each one dependent on the other. And if one part goes, everything falls apart, you begin to quickly realize that there's a creator, there's someone running the show, <clears throat> and you see exactly what the Derek Hashem says, that <clears throat> it has to be. It can't be otherwise. Would you like to know Pshat in that bracha, Hamotzi Lechem and Arts? What that means in plain simple language is I acknowledge and understand that Hashem runs the world. I acknowledge and understand that it's not that just Hashem runs the rains and the crops, and that Hashem runs the systems of everything that happens. Why is there a government in the United States of America that is of the people, by the people, for the people? Because that's the way Hashem decided it should be, and Hashem makes sure that Congress passes laws that it should, doesn't pass other laws that it shouldn't. And the fact that there are companies, the fact that there's a stock market, the fact that everything is integrated, you're looking at your creator. And anyone who thinks that it just happens on its own, it could just run on its own, isn't paying attention to simple reality. Nothing exists on its own. Nothing remains running on its own. And nothing in our entire existence somehow remains perfectly integrated, perfectly moving without someone keeping it in place. So and that's what I call the physical level of knowing that Hashem has to be here. And it's something that it, it bears thinking about and bears understanding. But I believe that that's not really what the Derech Hashem is saying. And if you want to really understand what the Derech Hashem is saying, and He's saying to us that it has to be that Hashem exists. It's impossible otherwise. So I'll share with you a thought experiment of the Rambam, and this I think will help open things up a little bit. The Rambam gives us a thought experiment. He says, imagine for a minute the following. What if Hashem didn't exist? Imagine for a minute that Hashem didn't exist. The Rambam says, the minute that that would be a possibility in my mind, nothing else could exist. If Hashem doesn't exist, then nothing else could exist. Now I want to explain to you what the Rambam means, and this is what I call the metaphysical part of things. We like to think that we are creative. When I create something, I take things that are in existence already, and I move them around, and I make something new. So for instance, I have some wood, I have some nails, I have a hammer, I bang it together, I make a shack. Let's say I were to build a shack and leave that shack for 20 years, come back 20 years later, I would expect that that shack would still be there. The reason for that is because I created nothing. I took things that were in existence, I reshuffled them, I moved them around, but I created nothing. If you want to understand creation, it's really very, very different than anything that we human beings do. 
and to share with you what creation is, let me share with you a question. I don't remember which daughter it was, but one of my daughters asked this question. She was in six years old. She was learning about the mice abrasions in school, and she came back and she said, Abba, I get it. Before she showed me the world, there were no color, there were no trees, there were no oceans. I get it, but Abba, what color was it? What color was it? And if you think about her question, I think you'll realize it's actually a very deep question. I want you to close your eyes for a minute, and imagine the moment before Hashem said Vayihi. Right, if you close your eyes and imagine the moment before Hashem <coughs> said it should be, what do you see? Now typically when you do that, you see black. But you see black is a color. Even vacuum implies physicality. Before Hashem created the world, there was nothing. Absence of physicality. Absence of anything. And if you take that very, very difficult step, you'll realize that creation is impossible. It is physically impossible to create something from nothing. You see, if I have sand, I can bake bricks. If I have molecules, I can make sand. If I have atoms, I can make molecules. If I have quarks, I can make atoms. But if there's absence of anything, if there's nothing, there's nothing to mold, nothing to form, you cannot from nothing create something. Creation is physically impossible. And that is a very, very important step. Because when you take that step, you begin to realize what Hashem's relationship to this physical world is. And to do this, I want to share with you a mushal. Some ladies who were here last year heard this mushal, but I think it bears repeating anyway. If you'd like to know Hashem's relationship to everything in creation, imagine the following. <clears throat> imagine it's a cold February night, and I'm waiting for the bus. I'm shivering to my core. I close my eyes, and I imagine a beautiful beach scene white sand, ocean blue, cloudless sky, one lone seagull gently wafts across the sky, suddenly the bus comes splash. Gone is the ocean blue, gone is the sand, gone is the seagull. I am the dreamer. As long as I think about the dream, as long as I envision the dream, the dream is here. And the minute I cease thinking about it, gone is the sand, gone is the seagull, gone is the ocean blue. That is Hashem's relationship to physicality. You see, when I create something, I create nothing. I take things in existence and move them around. From absolute absence of anything, when Hashem said, Vayihi, it should be, Hashem was mishave, created, and therefore has to maintain everything in creation. What the Rambam is telling us, and this is what the Derech Hashem is saying, is that if for a moment of time, Hashem would cease to infuse energy into any particle of physicality, it would cease to exist. Meaning Hashem is keeping everything in existence in every moment of time. Why? Because a yeshme ayin, a something from nothing, ex nihilo creation, requires not just creation, but maintaining it, keeping it. Because again, the sand, the quarks, the molecules, everything has to be not just created, but maintained. And what that means in plain, simple language is, if I see something... I see my creator. If I see a table, if I see a rock, if I see a tree, if I see sand, I see Hashem. Because when you train your mind to understand that nothing can come into existence from nothing, if there is nothing it can't be, you begin to understand that Hashem's relationship to the world is much like I to the dream. As long as I think about the seagull, it remains in existence. The minute I cease thinking about it, it's gone. That's Hashem's relationship to everything in existence. Hashem is not just the creator, but the maintainer. The creator, maintainer, and orchestrator of everything in existence. Now, 
You may say to me, this is very esoteric, very vague. What's it got to do with the price of beans in South Afghanistan? What's it got to do with us? So, ladies, I'd like to share with you, this has an awful lot to do with us, because when you say a bracha, there are different words that we refer to Hashem with. There's the word Hashem, Adon Akol. That means, and if you look at Salah and Shulchan Aruch, when you say Barachat Hashem, spelled either, let's say, let's say Ad Aleph Dalad Nun Yud, you're supposed to understand the Kavan is Adon Hakol, Master of Creation. When you say Elokim or Elokenu, that's a different expression to Hashem. That's referring to a different manifestation of Hashem, and you're supposed to have a totally different intention. When you say Elokim or Elokenu, what you're supposed to think about is that Hashem is Baal Hakochos Kulam that Hashem is the energy source of all the physicality, of everything in creation. Hashem is kol yochel, Hashem can do anything. You ever notice that expression, Hashem can do anything? Do you know why? Because anything that exists only exists because Hashem holds it in existence. There are no such things as laws of nature, there are no such things as rocks, no such things as sand. It's Hashem keeping it, maintaining it, constantly being mishavet, constantly every moment. What the Rambam is saying is, if Hashem would cease to exist, everything would cease to exist, because Hashem is not just the creator, Hashem is the maintainer, the orchestrator, but more than anything, keeping every particle of existence in existence, and if for a split second Hashem would cease to keep that in existence, it would not be. And that is a concept that we're supposed to be aware of, alert to, we're supposed to think about it when we use the name of Hashem, when we say Elokim or Elokenu, and it's, I think, a big part of our religion, and I think that's what the Derech Hashem is saying to us. So, just to recap, and, and I want a question, actually, question, thoughts before we recap. Question, thoughts, observations. Rabbi, what's this got to do with the price of being in South Afghanistan? Well, yeah. How would we apply the phrase Hashemayim Shemayim Lahashem Vahaarat Natanit Ne Adat? Right. And I heard Shir last week, so I, I heard what they said, but how could we fit that into <coughs> Right. Okay, now, absolutely. So Hashemayim Hashem them means that Hashem gives over certain rights, let's call it illusionary rights, to control things, or at least look like man is controlling things. What that means in simple language is as follows. To allow for Bechira, to allow for free will, Hashem allows for this illusion that I control, it's going to be the outcome. Now, in reality, I control no outcomes, the only thing that I do is I go through the motions, I do what I'm supposed to, and every outcome of every decision of my life has been predetermined, guided by Hashem. All I do is go through the motions. So <clears throat> what we Jews walk around with is a dual reality. There's what I call like on the ground, and there's reality. On the ground, I have to do my part. My part to earn a living, I have to get a job, to stay healthy, I have to eat right. It's time to get married. I have to go out. If I decide I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna eat right, I'm not gonna eat healthy. I'm gonna, you know, all bets are off. So if I decide to do that, number one, I'm not acting the way Hashem wants me to, and most likely the outcome that's supposed to be isn't going to be. But provided that I do my ishtalas as I'm supposed to, I use the world as I'm supposed to, then I'm also supposed to recognize that exactly the outcome that is pre- predetermined that Hashem decided should be is going to be. So. Um, in a sense, Hashem allows this world to look like we control things. And in a sense, it looks like big, powerful man is in charge, and oh my goodness, a powerful government, and oh my goodness, that person's going to change my destiny. And in a sense, that's our operating mode. At the same time, we have to be fully aware that every outcome 
is determined by Hashem, is decided by Hashem. And you see, this understanding, what the, what the Derech Hashem is explaining to us is fundamental to understanding how it is that Hashem is always involved in, in every situation. Yeah, let me make this very clear. Let's imagine the following. I'm driving on a highway, and I, I hit a pothole, and somehow I roll up, and I'm falling down the cliff. Oh my goodness, Hashem, save me! Now, how could Hashem possibly save me? Hashem is 13 billion light years up there in heaven. Hashem, can you hear me? Send somebody quick. How could Hashem have saved me when I'm so distant from, from Hashem? So the answer to this dilemma is that I'm never distant from Hashem. Anything that exists, including me, including my skin, including my bones, everything in existence is kept in existence by Hashem. One of the names we refer to Hashem is Hamakom, the place. Why? Because if there is something, then Hashem is there. Hashem is the place because Hashem is everywhere all the time because if Hashem isn't there, it isn't. So if you wonder, how did Hashem suddenly make it there at the nick of time? Hashem is always, as a matter of fact, we mentioned, I think we mentioned this last week, but whenever the, the Targum always translates, whenever the Pesach says, Vayira Hashem al-Avram, Hashem appeared to Avram, right? So how does the Targum translate it? Isgali. Revealed, meaning when you read that pasuk, Hashem appeared. Oh, I'm here. I wasn't here before, and now I'm here. Avram, hello, I'm here. The Targum says it's foolish. You mean Hashem appeared? Hashem wasn't there until he showed up on the scene. Is Gali revealed? Hashem is everywhere, all the time, totally, completely there. The problem is that Hashem is blocked from us, and we're clouded. We can't see. Is Gali? Hashem appeared to Avram. He revealed himself so that. Avram was able to cut through the physicality, he was able to see Hashem right there, Hashem revealed himself. But again, the concept is that Hashem is everywhere at all times, and this allows you to understand, at least on some level, how Ashkacha works, how Hashem manages to show up on the scene. It's not that Hashem shows up on the scene. Hashem is there all the time, watching me, guiding me, guarding me, and that's, again, the under, one of the underpinnings of our entire Muna system. But yes, ladies, thoughts, observation, and if anyone has a question on the, uh, on the Zoom, you're more than welcome to raise a hand. Thoughts, observations, for or against? What color was it? What color <laughs> was it? But do you understand why it's such a good question? Because... Yeah, I still have a question. <laughs> oh, you see, you have a question because you're trapped in this thing called life. My whole <laughs> life, I've always... You're trapped too. <laughs> I've, I've always seen with my eyes, I've always experienced things through my senses so for me to imagine a world before it, it requires, uh, last week we mentioned the you know, stretch and slim that, that anytime we have a serious discussion about Hashem we have to recognize that we're outside our frame of reference, in other words meaning Hashem is boundless, limitless, beyond any description, beyond any limitation so anytime we, have, we try to have a serious discussion about Hashem, we're automatically outside of our frame of reference. Every, anything I've ever experienced, anything I've ever been involved with has always been in this world, in these colors, in these dimensions, in this texture. In the, but, but you're talking about something totally in a totally different dimension. So you're right. Imagining what it was like before Hashem created the world is not an easy uh, thing to do, but it's an important thought experiment <laughs> because when you, when you do it, you're able to recognize that, wait a minute, it's not so simple. It's not so simple because before Hashem created anything, there was absolute absence. There was totally nothing. And from nothing, you can't build something. You can't just will it to be. It doesn't just happen. It requires a mishabe, somebody to create it and maintain it. And again, at that point, then you begin to, on some level to understand 
Hashem's relationship to the uh, to the world and all of existence. Good <coughs> thoughts, observation. If you're on the Zoom and you want to ask a question, please feel free. You can raise your hand. We do have we allowed to talk. And last week we actually had a brave person actually raise their hand. But if you're shy, you don't have to. Or you could type it into the Q and A. Actually, you can type it into the Q and A. I have the Q and A over here. Uh, if you're shy and you want to type it in, you could type it in. Please don't use the chat, but I do use the Q and A. You could use that and type a question in. Um, yes. So does that mean that if Hashem had a world planned and He wanted it to be maintained properly, is that why He created humans? Okay. So as we'll see, the entire cre- reason for creation is humans. The only reason why Hashem created the world and everything in the world is for human beings. Um, and the Derech Hashem is going to explain that to us as we get further into it. <clears throat> but everything in creation was created for one reason, because Hashem is the native, Hashem is the giver. Hashem wanted to give people a chance to be close to Him, to earn their world to come. This world is the prosdor, and again, uh, these are, this is like the trailer for future attraction, future coming, uh, coming shiurim, but yeah. I think what you said before also kind of clarified, because like, if everything is Hashem, and when we make a decision that removes Hashem from that thought or that moment, like we make a wrong decision and we decide to do something that, you know, we call it a navera, but we make a wrong decision that's going to make us more distant, so Hashem becomes more distant. And that's why it becomes cloudy and murky and we don't feel close to Hashem at the moment because for all intents and purposes, Hashem kind of pulls back a little bit. Right, but we, we are becoming a non-clee for Hashem by good. making that wrong decision. Good. I, right. I like some words you're using. I, I like the word cloudy. I don't like the word distant. In other words, you see, cloudy, you see, Hashem is here every moment, every, in every human being's existence, every particle physicality's existence. The problem is I can't see Hashem. I'm a, it's obscured for me. It's it's blocked for me. The heavy cloak of physicality prevents me from seeing it. But but Hashem's existence is permanent, is always. And, and again, as the Derek Hashem says, if Hashem isn't there, totally, completely present, then it, whatever it is, isn't. Because Hashem is the maintainer of everything. So, the idea of Hashem is is you know is uh, distant or or removed. Uh, it, but it, we feel it. We feel the So, so we feel the heavy cloak of physicality prevents me from seeing Hashem. So, yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm, it's it, it may just be a semantic, but it's yeah. an important semantic because again, it's important to keep you know the the, the perspective. And again, the, that's the point that Derek Hashem is explaining to us that a thinking person will realize that it's it's physically impossible for Hashem not to exist because if I think, then Hashem is. If I exist, then Hashem is. If anything exists, then Hashem is, because Hashem keeps everything in existence. And again, much like I to the to the dream, I'm the dreamer. I keep the seagull in existence. If I cease to think about it, it no longer exists. that's Hashem's relationship to everything in the in the world. And again, so therefore, I, I think it's important to to use terms and words that you know that that obscured, blocked, we don't see, etc. Good. Good? Everything's good? Wow. Deep. Food for thought. <laughs> I, th- I think this is a great um, choice, though, to teach. I really appreciate it. 
We have one one approval. Good. One like. <laughs> one like. <laughs> and thumbs down. <laughs> I also want to say that I think that you presented it with such clarity that I literally don't have questions, which is amazing. Because I always oh, have good. questions. That's good. Right. We need what's where, oh, what's right. anyone used to be here? Um, who had who had all the yeah. Oh, yeah, you have, first yeah. of all, yeah, 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 yeah. No questions. Wow, that's ooh. wow. Yes. Yeah. So this is my observation that, like, when you leave things alone in the world, they tend to degrade, right? Not regenerate and recreate. So that alone is like a proof that there has to be something. There's no system in, in existence that that remains. Every system degenerates. Every system breaks down, except the entire world. That somehow just all in, you know. It's, it, and you know, and the truth is, even even the muscle of the, you know, the, the the airport running without without a control tower, it it fails, it pales in comparison to really, it doesn't paint the picture because there's such complexity in the world and such delicate systems. You know, everyone today loves to de- decide if 1.5 degrees and bloom everything in the planet ceases to exist, and they'll they'll if you just type in the word climate change in Google and you'll find everything is going bad. Every, but wait a minute, this 1.5 degrees. You know the tilt of the of, of the of the earth to the sun, 23.5 degrees. Why doesn't it just tilt a little bit more? And it's not 1.5 degrees difference, then all of a sudden it's 95 degrees difference. Or if the, the orbit changed a little bit, you know, it's 91 million miles in winter, 93 in the summer. If it changed a little bit, it would be, um, let's say, 4,000 degrees on planet Earth and not so uh, inhabitable. So, like, the complexity, the sophistication, the, the, the delicate systems, and again, climate change, what they're, what they're touting is the smallest change of one and a half degrees, and everything on the planet ceases to exist. If somehow, for millennium, the world continued to exist just on its own. Nat- nature just is wondrous. Wondrous nature on its own kept the climate perfectly aligned, kept the acid levels, kept the carbon dioxide, kept the, the greenhouse effect, didn't have a problem. Yeah, but kept the liberals. Gave, I'm sorry? Gave the liberals something to talk about. <laughs> we don't talk politics at the <laughs> dinner table. <clears throat> All right, good. Okay, thank you much, ladies. Again, I just want to mention, and this is certainly for everyone that's on turning time, the book is coming out, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes that Very Small Couples Make. It's Shem Hanukkah time. Look for it in the bookstores. Look for it on the shmooze.com. Um, it's uh, highly, I highly recommend it. No, but it really, it's a very recommended read. Um, thank you for joining. I hope to see you all next week. Thank you.